Um, let's pray. Would you join me? God, thank you for this morning and the opportunity that we have to gather here together. God, we, uh, I just want to pray and invite you to come and, and teach us this morning. Um, God, we're thinking about things that matter greatly, uh, things that, that matter in regards to eternity, things that uh, matter in regards to today, to here and now. And Lord, uh, we need you to speak to us. And so God, as we open up your word, as we look at what you have revealed, we pray that you would give us the ears that we need to hear, the minds that we need to understand. God, I believe that you have spoken and it is in our best interest to draw near and listen. We pray that you would help us to do that here and now. And so Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and make sense of the word. And God, I pray that you would guard my words, that they would, uh, they would be accurate to yours. And we ask this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to track through into, into part two of this One Flesh series that we have begun last week and will continue through the end of this month, uh, really culminating in this marriage conference. And I uh, felt like it was an appropriate time to, to step into the debate and the discussion in regards to marriage that has kind of been swirling around our nation. It's certainly been swirling around the world. And, and rather than doing so immediately in, in light of senior Supreme Court rulings and, and media coverage, uh, I felt like my tone, my attitude may have been a bit more reactionary and, and probably a bit unhelpful. Um, but I feel like now is an appropriate time, at least in my own heart, where we can consider these matters. And it's not just Tim ranting and raving. Um, perhaps it's, it's Tim contending for what the Lord has said. And, and so what I want to do, if we could achieve these two things out of this series, I, I think it's a win. Um, one, that we might learn what God's Word says and be able to live more faithfully. That we might learn what God's Word says and be able to live more faithfully. And then the second, engage more thoughtfully. There's been a lot of engagement in regards to marriage, in regards to uh, how marriage is defined, how all of these things uh, come about. There's been a lot of engagement. It's not always been all thoughtful. And we need to be thoughtfully engaging. We need to measure and guard our words as we engage in this discussion and debate. And our lives need to match the very things that we're claiming with our lips. So we need to live faithfully, and then we need to be ready to engage thoughtfully. And what we looked at last week, and in, in really the big idea that we had last week, was that marriage is created and defined by God so that God may be glorified and humanity may flourish. And we looked at Genesis 2 and Genesis 1 and the created event that the Lord did where he took the dust and he formed Adam and then he realized that it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. He paraded all of the animals by Adam to convince Adam of that very fact. And then the Lord caused Adam to go into a deep sleep. He took a rib from Adam and he formed then woman or Eve. She wasn't named yet. Adam, quite frankly, wasn't named yet. But he formed the woman and then Adam realizes, I now have a partner. 
I now have somebody that compliments me. I have now have somebody who's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and the Lord then presides over the first wedding ceremony. In verse 24 of chapter 2, Moses records, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, they shall become one flesh. This is the Lord presiding over this this wedding ceremony and then the byproduct, the crescendo of all of this, that the man and the wife were both naked and they were unashamed. Marriage has been created and defined by God and it was done so at creation and we need to understand that design serves the purpose. So there's a purpose by which man and woman were needing one another. And the design that the Lord built into their physical bodies, their complementing roles, it all serves the purpose. What is that purpose? Well, for Adam, that purpose was to work and keep. It was to cultivate and it was to guard. He was placed in the garden with those two commands. Adam is to work, he's to cultivate, and he's to guard. There was a role and a responsibility and a purpose that the Lord gave the man, and then the woman was made as a helper fit for him. Her role and responsibility was to complete what he was lacking in the role and responsibility that the Lord had given him. Design serves the purpose, and you and I know this, we experience this all Throughout our lives, we are going to drive home in cars. The purpose of those cars is to get us from point A to point B. The design of those cars serves that purpose. We understand how design serves purpose. Well, marriage is no different. Design serves purpose. But marriage was not only defined at creation, it also has been attacked since creation. Marriage has been attacked since creation, and marriage has been under attack since before the fall, and will continue to be attacked. That's the big idea for this morning. Marriage has been under attack since before the fall, and will continue to be attacked. And so for us, as we look at Genesis 3, where we see the first instances of this attack, what we're going to try to do is understand the very ways and means by which our marriages are attacked, so that we may be able to understand how we are to be prepared and also stand firm in light of the attack. And at the heart of the attack is the desire and goal of our enemy to try to sever this one flesh relationship that the Lord has created. Perhaps it's a severing of two people who are joined together. Perhaps it's the Perhaps it's the, the perverting of the understanding of that relationship before two people are even together. If, if, if Satan can accomplish his goal at dissolving one flesh relationships or creating so much havoc before they even begin that they're not fully functioning and God glorifying and humanity flourishing relationships... He's completed his objective. And we see this play out in the very, very beginning book of the Scriptures where in Genesis alone, if we were just to casually purview our way through 
look and see what types of observations we can make in regards to sexual sin and relationships where it was to be reserved for just one man and one woman in covenant relationship together, we see some things that are quite astounding. And here's the list. We see polygamy. We see adultery. We see rape. We see homosexuality. We see incest. We see prostitution. The list could have gone on. It could have been a little bit more specific. But in many ways, these are broad categories. And I would submit to you that these categories are no different than the categories of sexual sin that we see today. So the very things that you and I in our culture find ourselves uh, warring against or being tempted by or having to stand firm in light of are the very same things that have been since the fall, if not even before the fall, when the serpent came and put a full frontal attack on a one flesh relationship that the man and the woman enjoyed. And so the culmination of their wedding ceremony, the culmination of this event as recorded in Genesis 2, chapter or verse 25, was the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the culmination of them being one flesh. And those words, naked and not ashamed, certainly speak to their physical bodies, but they speak to so much more than that. They speak to the, the wholeness of the relationship they experience. They speak to the relational connection they have. They speak to the emotions that they have. They speak to the intellect that they have. There was, there was no reason for any shame anywhere in this relationship. And it wasn't just because they had perfect physical bodies. It's because there was the absence of sin. And this becomes now where the attack is laid against. And so what I want to do, we're actually going to do something I'm not sure we've done. We're going to read all of Genesis 3 together. Because as we think through the, the different ways we see one flesh being attacked, we see these attacks happening in different places in the chapter. And so if we can read the whole chapter and then reference back, I think that will serve us most helpfully. So look with me at Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? 
The man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, And clothed them. The Lord God said, Behold, man is becoming like us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. We see that marriage is not only defined at creation, it has also been attacked since creation. And, and while we see these things, there's, there's a few caveats that I need to walk through and, and highlight for you so that we might understand. Is, and, and part of it is, is how you and I um, live in light of temptation, or perhaps more appropriate, how temptation works, where it comes from. And so we are actively tempted by indwelling sin. What I mean by indwelling sin is this, is that our flesh has not yet been made fully new. Our spirits are, we are new creations, but our bodies will one day be fully new. That's what we sang about 10 minutes ago. There will be a day. That is when our bodies are fully new. And the result of that is that you and I still wage war against impulses and desires and ways of thinking and behaviors that we may find ourselves susceptible to that is is against our spirits which have been made new because our flesh still desires them. So we battle and we're actively attempted by indwelling sin. We're actively tempted by our culture around us, and we're actively tempted by Satan and his demonic host. I think one of the, one of the most broad ways that we can define and understand demonic activity is what is the celebration of evil? If evil is being celebrated, I, I honestly believe you have demonic influence there. Not only are we actively tempted by indwelling sin, by the culture around us, and by Satan and his demonic host, we also groan under the consequences of the fall. And you have the Lord walking Adam and Eve through the consequences of the fall that they would groan under. In pain shall you bring forth children. Adam, your 
you're going to have a harder time. In pain shall you work the ground. One scholar said this, and I think it's incredibly helpful, that the curse brought about a distortion of roles, not the introduction of new roles, and we groan underneath the consequences of the fall. And taking these things into account, what we are actively tempted by, and the groaning that you and I have until the Lord does make all things new, I think we then can consider four different ways that we find ourselves tempted Four different ways that we can see this one flesh relationship being attacked. And the first of those four is that there is a temptation to undermine the roles and design that God has created. So and I just quoted for you from that scholar, the curse brought a distortion of roles, not the introduction of new roles. And we're back to this understanding design and purpose. Design serves a purpose. And so the, the, the goal of a one flesh relationship was designed to accomplish a purpose. And there can be a temptation to undermine the roles and design that God has created. And we see here from Genesis 2.15 and last week, God gave man the role of working, the role of cultivating. And he gave him the role of keeping, the role of guarding. And God gave the woman, the role of a helper. She was to provide what the man was lacking in order to accomplish the task. And we see that there's a temptation to undermine the roles and design as God has created. And we see this play out in these ways. First of all, the serpent speaks directly to the woman with plural pronouns. If you look at Genesis 3 verses 1 to 5, every instance in those five, six verses where you have the word you, it is a plural you. Did God really say you shall not eat of any of the tree in the garden? The serpent undermines the roles that God had ordained and set up and he goes and speaks to the woman asking her to represent her her and Adam. And it is not that she was unable to be a representative. It's not that she is incapable. It's not that she was inferior. She was not cognitively lacking. There was no diminishing skill set that she had that created her unable to represent. She just wasn't given that role. And the serpent comes and undermines the Lord's roles and speaks directly to her, asking her to represent, to speak responsibly for her and her husband. In contrast, in verse 8, when the Lord comes walking in the cool of the day, we see in verses 9 and 11 then, God speaks directly to the man, and he does so with singular pronouns. He addresses Adam singularly, even though Adam and Eve both collectively had sinned, even though, quite frankly, Eve sinned first. But you see the undermining of roles by the serpent and the upholding of roles by God Himself, that He comes to Adam as the one who has been given the responsibility to cultivate and to keep, to guard and to protect, and He speaks to him and holds him accountable for the actions. The first temptation that we see is a temptation to undermine the roles that the Lord has given. 
God holds all parties, the serpent included, responsible for the actions. He does not hold them all equally responsible. And that is a truth that is played out across the New Testament scriptures where we are told that we have inherited a sin nature because of Adam's sin. But it was Eve that sinned first. Eve wasn't given the role of representative for humanity. Adam was. And it was his sin that brought the fall, not hers. There is a temptation to undermine the roles and design that God has created. Secondly, we can see a temptation to question and ignore God's word. A temptation to question and ignore God's word. Look at what the serpent said in verse 1. Did God actually say? And this temptation is going to play itself out in three primary ways that we see reflected in Eve's reasoning. There's an enticing of your flesh to find gratification outside of what the Lord has provided. There's an enticement of your eyes to desire what God has not given. And there's an enticing of your pride to not submit to God's ways. Their flesh, her flesh was enticed to find gratification outside of what God had provided. He had provided every tree with the exception of one. He had provided the tree of life. And we don't have time this morning to to work through all of the implications of that. But the tree of life was in the garden alongside the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden lest they grab hold of the tree of life. And if we would fast forward to the tail end of Revelation, you will see recorded there in heaven the tree of life. God had provided for them everything including this tree that we don't know what would have happened if they had taken hold of that fruit and eaten. But their flesh was enticed to find gratification outside of what God had provided. The forbidden tree was not for them. But Eve was deceived to believe that something greater had been withheld from them. And we need to understand that when the scriptures call us to obedience, they are not calling us, God is not trying to keep us from good things. He is trying to lead us to the greatest thing. And parents, I I plead with you, as you discipline your kids, as you train your kids and, and, and teach them and instruct them in the way of the Lord, that you frame obedience to God in that way for them. And sweetie, I know you want this, but, but, but God's word says you're not supposed to have this, but he wants good things for you. And he's not trying to keep you from good things. He's trying to lead you to the greatest thing. But our flesh will be tempted to find gratification outside of what God has provided. And men, we find this to be true. If we're honest, we find this to be true where we can find an an idea of gratification outside of what God has provided. And we've got a war against that. We've got a war against lust. We've got a war against those sexually immoral desires that we may still have because we have indwelling sin. We've got to turn the TV channel when the Victoria's Secret commercial comes on. We've got to guard where we go on the internet. And all of it is a temptation To be gratified in a way that is outside of what God has provided. 
Proverbs 5 speaks in very, very plain language in regards to this. We can also be enticed with our eyes to desire what God has not given. Eve was deceived to want what God had not given her. And I think disunity in marriage can come about when we selfishly want what God has not given. Consider this. I would love to own a truck. I've owned a truck before. I couldn't afford a truck when I owned a truck, so we had to get rid of the truck. But I'd love to own a truck that didn't need all of the work my old truck had. If I just went out and bought a truck because I make the money, because I work, because I do all of these things and just drove home with the truck, it's probably an opportunity for disunity to now be introduced into my marriage because I never sat down with my wife and I never said, hey, can we budget for a truck? Now granted, I love my Buick. That thing has a bun warmer like you wouldn't believe. It is a treat to sit in those front seats. But if I just went out and bought a truck... I've introduced disunity in the relationship because I have desired and I went out and found something and I went and bought because I, 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 and I've never included my wife in that. Owning a truck's not sinful. Mike, please don't conclude that. (laughs) Planning and budgeting to one day buy a truck, certainly appropriate. But if my eyes wanted something and I became unsatisfied in what the Lord had provided for me and just went out and bought a truck, it's a temptation to question and ignore God's word, to desire what God has not given, and there would be conflict introduced into my marriage. Thirdly, underneath this idea of questioning and ignoring God's word is an enticement of your pride to not submit to God's way can be the undermining, again, of the roles that the Lord has put in place in regards to a marriage relationship. And what we see, and we even see it play out with Adam and Eve, is that the pendulum is going to swing in one or two ways. It's going to swing to either sinful dominance or sinful passivity. And let me show you where we see that. The wife will be tempted to undermine the role of headship that God has given her husband or will passively remain silent and not compliment her husband as a helper fit for him. We see this play out in Genesis 2.18 where the role of a woman was given, where she was a complimenting helper to him. She provided what he was lacking. She was the, the puzzle piece that he was missing. And then we see in the results of the fall in Genesis 3.16 that her desire now will be for her husband. She will now desire, she will groan against this desire to dominate. And that phrase, your desire will be for, is almost identical to a phrase in chapter 4 of Genesis where the Lord tells Cain, sin is crouching at its door. Its desire is for you. The picture there is a conquering desire. What the Lord tells Cain is that sin is like a rabid beast trying to overtake you. And it's the exact same language in Genesis 3.16. And a woman will be tempted to undermine the role of God, the headship that God has given her husband, 
or will passively remain silent and not compliment her husband as a fit. You can see the second part of this in, in, in women that are just kind of doormats. They don't really give an opinion. Probably they don't give an opinion because they've never been allowed to give an opinion, and we'll get to the men here in a moment. But ladies, God did not create you to just be silent. He created you to complete what your husband was lacking. Men, we're going to be tempted to aggressively dominate our wives, giving her no voice. Or we're going to be tempted to passively check out and not cultivate and guard the spheres of influence that the Lord has placed us in. Dominance or passivity. And tempted to ignore and question God's word. Think about this. The man who says, I got this. I only need you to be quiet and to serve me is a man who has sinfully dominated his wife, who is out of step with what the Lord would want him to have. He is not cultivating. He is not guarding. He is not working to create a God-honoring, one-flesh relationship for his wife. But equally, the man who comes home and checks himself out in the lazy broy recliner is just as at fault in not cultivating and not guarding the roles and responsibilities the Lord has given him. One of the phrases that honestly caused me a lot of, of just internal consternation is the phrase, happy wife, happy life. And we got to be careful here, and i got to be real careful here, because it is not that I am against my wife's happiness. I am, quite frankly, very for it. But oftentimes, I hear that phrase communicated in a way that says this, I'm just going to check out and provide no counter, and she can make the decisions, and we're good then. That's sinful passivity. And if you make the phrase happy wife, happy life in that definition, in that context, it's wrong. Man, we need to be for our wives. We need to be cultivating our wives and our family. We need to be guarding and keeping and protecting our wives and our families. And we will be tempted to question and ignore God's word. Ladies, you might, you might know some because certainly it wouldn't be any of you. You might know somebody who would just say, well, he, my husband's a fool. I'm just going to keep him in the dark about a lot of this stuff. And that is reinforced everywhere in our culture. Men as fools is reinforced everywhere. Think of a commercial that, that aired several years ago. It may have been the most blatant place that I saw this. It was a State Farm commercial. It was not Jake from State Farm, but, but he was pretty foolish in that one too. Uh, it was the commercial where the man's walking down the street with his wife, and she's on the phone with the agent, and she asks the question, why did you buy my husband a falcon? And the man goes, thanks for the falcon, and he sounds a bit like a goon. And, and he, the, the agent's like, well, I didn't buy your husband a falcon. And she's like, well, no, he bought a falcon. And what happened was that the State Farm agent saved him hundreds of dollars and all of those good things they're trying to promote. And the man knew of only one thing to do with the savings, buy a falcon. Now, if you watch the commercial, every man in that commercial is either carrying, pushing, or walking around with some object that is over-the-top foolish, 
Some are walking down the street with a jukebox. I mean, like, like the big old, old school records inside jukebox. One guy's walking around with a stuffed moose. One guy's walking around with another bird on his arm, and he's like, I should have got a falcon. Men as painted foolish. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And women, you can be tempted to ignore and question God's word by seeking to undermine the role and responsibility of headship that God has given your husband. And ladies, it, if your husband's not willing to take the mantle of leadership on his own, I get it. It's going to be hard. Because you're, you're doers. And some of you have crazy skills and abilities to get things done. got to be careful here. There can be a temptation to question and ignore God's word. Got to be careful here. There's a lot of nuance in trying to apply these. The examples that I've given are, are somehow, in, in many ways, are the extremes. But it gets, it gets real subtle and it, it honestly can get real tricky in the middle. Thirdly, there can be a temptation to hide and self-protect now, we're going to see this temptation play itself out much more in response to sin. So where there is sin in a relationship, where something has happened that has caused strain and stress in the relationship, then you have this one coming into play, a temptation to hide and self-protect. Because we can be prone to run away from God and the relationship. And we can begin to find life easier if we spend more time in the office or we ditch and dive questions at home. We perhaps bury ourselves in our work or in our projects and we see Adam and Eve hiding and self-protecting in response to sin. Genesis 3 verse 7, the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now you have, as a result of sin, the presence of shame in the relationship. We've got to hide. We've got to hide ourselves. Because what was true 30 seconds ago is no longer true. Because now we have an awareness of this. And we've got to hide and we've got to self-protect. And so Adam grabbed some fig leaves. But just for a minute, let's consider a fig leaf. Here's a picture of a, a girl who I have no idea who she is. It was just a picture I pulled up on the internet, but she's standing in front of a fig tree and she's holding a fig leaf. It's quite a large leaf. It's quite a lot of coverage. If you put a lot of those together and you, you sew them with some vines, you could make some, some clothing that would, would do the job. But what happens to fig leaves are the same thing that happens to all of our leaves every fall. They dry out and they shrivel. So all of the coverage you thought you had, it's just vanished. You're probably going to crack and fall off and all of your self-protective and hiding strategies have not worked. See, we can be prone to take what appears to be sufficient to cover and conceal and we can self-protect and hide but this only leaves us with more things to later be exposed with. You see the action of Adam to grab a bunch of fig leaves, to, 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 to hide, to self-protect. But then you also see the response of God at the tail end of chapter 3. 
and verse 21. The man called his wife's name Eve, that's verse 20, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Where Adam thought, I'm going to grab some leaves, I'm going to grab big leaves, I'm going to grab some vines, I'm going to sew them together, we're going to have some coverage, only to later have those dry and shrivel for exposure to, to not ever be accounted for. The Lord sacrifices an animal, and he makes clothes for them. And think of the differences between a, a, a leaf that will shrivel up and a piece of leather that will endure for quite a long time. The Lord clothing Adam and Eve with animal skins is a foreshadowing of the gospel. It's a foreshadowing of of us being clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And so rather than than ditching and diving and running away from God and the relationship as we will be prone to do, We need to draw near and we need to press in. And that leads us to our fourth temptation, fourth attack on this one flesh relationship. We can be tempted to blame shift rather than take responsibility. We can be tempted to shift blame rather than take responsibility. And so the Lord comes walking in the garden looking for Adam and Eve. And the Lord says in verse 9 of chapter 3, He called to the man and said, Where are you? Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked. How about that is the first question ever given in a marital counseling session. I've never let off with that one. Perhaps it would be a good one. Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? Verse 12, what does Adam do? The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. What does Eve do? Um, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Adam doesn't take responsibility. He shifts blame. Eve doesn't take responsibility. She shifts blame. And inherent in in both of their statements is not only an accusation against, for Adam, an accusation against Eve, and for Eve, an accusation against the serpent. It's both an accusation against God. Look back at verse 12. The woman whom you gave me. The woman said, the serpent. God, you created the serpent. Why'd you have to do that? Why did he have to be more crafty than all the other ones? It's a temptation to shift blame rather than take responsibility And we see this all the time in our kids. You may see it in yours. I know we definitely see it in ours. You walk into the room and and something has happened. You you may be right on the cusp of a world household war. What's going on? Well, she, right? Well, he did. It's just blame shifting. It's just blame shifting. And and somehow we, we think that our behavior can be excused by presenting evidence that somebody somehow became deserving of that action. Now your behavior may become understandable, but it's certainly not justifiable. 
And so the man who would say, well, if you only knew what I have to live with, you would understand. This man's way out of step. The woman who would say a statement very similar, if you only knew the man that I have to live with, way out of step. Because in both of those cases, that individual Did they not make a covenant pledge before God and to that person for better, for worse? You may not have thought worse meant what you're dealing with, but did you not give your word? We're going to be tempted to blame shift rather than take responsibility. Blame shifting may lead to an understanding of your behavior. It certainly doesn't justify it, and it most certainly doesn't excuse it. But this will be an attack on this one flesh relationship. We will be tempted to undermine the roles that God has created. We will be tempted to question and ignore God's word. We will be tempted to hide and self-protect. We will be tempted to shift blame rather than take responsibility. And that is what we see play out in the attacks and in the aftermath of the first attack against marriage. And folks, it has happened since that day and will continue until the Lord says no more. We need to understand how our marriages, how this one flesh relationship will be attacked so that we can be ready, so that we can live faithfully, so that we can engage thoughtfully. And just considering what we're to do, In some ways, it's pretty simple and it's not real different than what you might expect. But we've got to learn. We've got to learn God's word. And we've got to be willing to fight with everything that we have. We've got to learn what God expects. We've got to learn where the temptation to question and ignore comes from. We've got to learn what it'll look like. We've got to know the truth so much that we can discern the lie immediately. That's how they train bank tellers, folks, with, with uh, identifying counterfeit bills. They put them in a vault. They count it for three days. On day three, they put a, a limited number of counterfeit bills in the vault. And that teller has spent so much time touching and looking at and counting what is real, they immediately are able to identify what is false. That is how you and I are to think about God's word. We're to understand it and and know it so that we may be able to see where the the opportunity to question and ignore is coming. And we got to fight. We gotta fight. We gotta fight a whole lot less with one another about these matters and a whole lot more with one another and against the areas that we are tempted in. Men, we gotta find older men that can pour into our lives, who have lived faithfully, who can testify to a life lived for God's glory, for a, a marriage lived for in, in years of faithfulness. It, it, it can be quite helpful, honestly, to find a man who didn't do it right. 
And for that man to be able to say, here's where I misstepped, and here are the devastating consequences that were the result of it. Ladies, you need the exact same thing. You need older, godly women in your lives. Older women, you need to go find these younger women, and they're going to be here on Friday night. Younger women, you need to go pursue these older women that you might learn from them. We need to think deeply about the design and purpose of marriage and the culmination that Genesis 2.24 speaks of in regards to this one flesh union. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The scriptures say that, that we have been glued to one another. And our relationships are spoken of as one flesh. There's no longer two. There's one. We need to live faithfully in light of that. And we need to understand that where we have failed in these things, there is a God who is mighty to save and to clothe with skins to clothe with the righteousness of Christ. And there is a God who is mighty to heal and forgive and restore. And so that's where we will end and where we will spend some time reflecting. Is that we have a God that gives grace and compassion. We have a God that heals and restores and He brings glorious stories of redemption out of messes. If you find yourself in the midst of a mess, you need to press into Him. Marriage has been attacked since before the fall. It has been attacked since creation. It will be attacked until the Lord determines it is time and He says, no more. I think you and I can be ready to stand against those attacks. Would you pray with me as the band comes up? Lord, we need you. We desperately need you. God, we need you to to provide for us the salvation that, that could not come from anyone else nor in any other form. God, like you clothed Adam and Eve with animal skins, we need your clothing of righteousness and grace that you give us in in your Son. But Lord, we need your grace daily to live out the very commands that you've given us in regards to these relationships that you've placed us in. We need your grace to live faithfully. We need your grace to engage thoughtfully. God, we thank you for who you are and the mighty God that you are. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.